Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80, and your smart speakers presented by Progressive Insurance. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. You can tweet us on the Dr. Pepper Twitter feed, at Sarah Spain, at Jason Fitz. It's that easy. We're going to get straight to some expertise to get you ready for the weekend, and we do that in the form of one of our friends, friend of the show, host of the Mina Kimes podcast with Lena Lenny, superstar NFL analyst on ESPN NFL Live. Uh, Mina Kimes hanging out with us. Uh, Mina, as always, appreciates your time. I'm supposed to ask you about Marcus Mariota here, but we'll get to that in a second. Uh, <laughs> no, 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 let's start with that. Just start with you chirping with... about how you were oh, no, so no, yeah. smart. Yeah, no, you knew why... better than everybody. Marcus Mariota's great. I didn't say he was great, but I, I definitely – why would you bench him? He's had some games that have been good. Why do we know that Desmond Ritter would be any better? Uh – you know, it, it, to me, it's we don't know that. But we do know at this point, I think, what Mariota's limitations are. You know, you're right. He has had some games where he's been good. And, you know, I mentioned on PGI today, obviously his running ability has uh, played a big role in the Falcons' success on the ground. But there's a pretty clear ceiling. And, and I would also say, you know, if he's going to turn the ball over, it kind of takes away the case for starting him over Ritter, which is experience and caution. Uh, and, I, and I also will say about Ritter, you know, I, I was a big fan of his coming out of the draft. I thought he looked really good during the preseason. And I do think he's one of the more pro-ready prospects. Now, again, that doesn't mean he's going to be great. But I feel like if you're the Atlanta Falcons, knowing that, you know, you're not going to make a deep playoff run if you even make the playoffs, it seems like you're better off uh, at least seeing what you have in your rookie, especially because the surroundings that we've seen this from the offensive line are better than I think anyone anticipated. Mina, we were talking today on Around the Horn about the Seahawks-Bucks matchup. And the question was, who would you rather have this week, Geno Smith or Tom Brady? I'd like to extend that question to you. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, it is pretty cool that we're letting our German friends see the best quarterback <laughs> in the NFL and also Tom Brady. Weekend, right? <laughs> like, what a great game for them. That's right. Uh, for one of the best quarterbacks. I don't think Gino's the best quarterback, but he's certainly playing like one of them right now. Um, and I think it's pretty hard to dispute the fact that he has played better football than Brady this season. Now, as we saw, you know, at any moment, Brady can get hot like he did at the end of the Rams games. But at this point, we have like a pretty significant sample size to look at both these quarterbacks. And Gino is just played with more confidence. You're seeing playmaking both inside and outside the pocket. Um, he's making more big time throws where Brady all too often this season just looks rattled. I want to quickly just chime in because uh, the eye test tells us that he's playing better. But the numbers are, too. Gino fourth in QBR, Brady yeah. 16th. Gino first in completion percentage, Brady 13th. Yeah. Gino third in passer rating, Brady 13th. The numbers are there, so we can say subjectively and we can also say definitively that right now he's just playing better, as hard as that is to maybe admit for some. But it's a pretty cool story. I agree. From your lips to God's ears, that will <laughs> continue. Um, no, I actually, you know, I, I, it's a crazy story because, you know, I – I always thought Geno Smith would be uh, was I think more accurate than people gave him credit for. He has a really good arm, but you know I have seen him play football. He played three games last year, and this sort of playmaking, the ability to do things beyond the structure of the offense, was not on display. It just seems like he's a guy almost playing with house money this year, and it's it's pretty fun to watch. We're talking to Mina Kimes. You can check her out on NFL Live, of course, and check out the Mina Kimes podcast with Lenny on Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. Uh, so, you know, I'll, I'll just 
peel out the fourth wall here for everybody. I texted Mina a couple weeks ago and said, what the heck happened to Derek Carr? So now I will ask you on air, for a quarterback that's usually so in control that is not now in control, what have you seen that explains what's gone wrong for an offense that was supposed to be very good? To me, there's a couple of things. I think, you know, this is something obviously you know, but the offensive line is been has been continues to be a problem in las vegas now that said we've seen Derek carr play better behind bad offensive lines before so it's not the only problem i have to say jason you know what really has shocked me this season is the play calling and sort of the marriage of coach and quarterback i thought it would be a slam dunk but um josh mcdaniels i i think has kind of underwhelmed as a, as a play caller in terms of mm. um getting the most out of his skill players and creating easy opportunities for Carr. And that's not to say that Carr isn't blameless for his play, of course, but it does feel like uh, what I expected to be a fruitful marriage could be actually one of the reasons why this team is not succeeding. Mina Kimes, host of the Mina Kimes podcast with Lenny with us here on Spain of Fitch. You can follow her at Mina Kimes. While we're talking about Tankathon 2022, we've talked a lot about <laughs> Jeff Saturday, great guy in a really weird and tough position. What does a win look like for him either this weekend or this season? Oh, man, I think uh, if it's even close, it's a win for Jeff because the expectations are so low, right? Like, you know, and also I think, you know, that's not just expectations for Jeff. The Colts are not a good football team. Uh, I think you might have seen Shaquille Leonard, their star linebacker, is done for the season. They're starting a rookie, or not a rookie, but a fairly inexperienced quarterback in Sam Ellinger, um, you know, who I don't think there's great expectations for. So, any success, whether even a close game, I think is a win for Jeff. Whereas on the other side of the field, it would be, frankly, humiliating for Josh McDaniels right. to lose his game, which might not be fair because, um, of course, Jason's probably screaming this. They just hired Hunter Renfro and Darren Waller. But for McDaniels, it's not just about the coach on the other side of the field. Uh, it's the fact that, of course, as you guys remember, he did spurn the Indianapolis Colts. There is potentially some bad blood there. So this feels like a must win for him personally. Who's a team, Mina, that we've all given up on that you haven't? Ooh, I mean, I, I'll say the Bucks, even though I, I have mm. Seattle this weekend. Um, you know, I get asked a lot, like, okay, who's going to allow you to turn around, Aaron Rodgers or Tom Brady? And I've been saying Brady over and over, not just because I think you've seen uh, more flashes of good play from him, but because with the Packers, there's clear personnel issues on offense. The Bucks have the personnel. Yeah, obviously the offensive line isn't what it was last year, but they still have a really good receiving group. I, I feel like a lot of their problems have been more execution and play calling. And, you know, on defense, they are talented. They have endured a great deal of injuries. And I think if they get healthier on that side of the ball, they should win what is an eminently winnable division. Mina Kimes, I was listening to the Mina Kimes show featuring Lenny, and you and your guests were talking about this weekend's uh, Bills-Vikings game. I agree with you that I'm probably taking the Vikings if Josh Allen isn't playing, but I haven't been super impressed by them. Someone just called me out on uh, Twitter for saying that their strength of schedule hasn't impressed me. They've only beaten one winning team, and it was Miami with Teddy Bridgewater and Skylar Thompson instead of uh, Tua. What Outside of actually getting to see them face a strong uh, full team in the Bills. What else do you need to see from the Vikings to believe in them? Well, first I'll say you're absolutely right. Your sentiment is one that uh, I'm hearing around the NFL with everyone I talk to. Nobody seems to know if the Vikings are actually good. It's very confusing. And I actually think there's some disappointment um, around the NFL, maybe not, you know, in the NFC, people <laughs> are competing with Minnesota, but you know, there was a hope that, okay, the Bills, finally, we're going to see, this is the limit. Right. Is this team for real? 
and they might not have Josh Allen or <laughs> Jordan Poirier, the safety, and Greg Rousseau is hurt. So it's like, oh, my God, when are we going to actually see what this team is? Um, I'll tell you what I think right now, which is that this is a defense that's basically average. Darius Smith has been a superstar, but outside of him, there's, I would say, particularly the secondary, not there's some issues there, there's holes. At best, I feel they can be competent. The offense, however, I think has a higher ceiling. Now, Kirk Cousins has not been particularly aggressive this year, um, sometimes to my frustration, but I do think he showed some of that last week, and then the addition of T.J. Hawkinson has the potential to vault this to one of the better offenses in the league, but you got to see it. You guys can follow her on Twitter, at Mina Kimes. Check out, of course, the Mina Kimes podcast with Lenny. Watch her on NFL Live every day. Mina, just let me know when I should start watching football again. The, the, the hurt's too much right now. Uh, in the meantime, we appreciate your expertise. Thanks for hanging out with us. Thanks, Mina. Thanks, guys. Oh, man. It's just, it, you know what? I didn't I even, even take talk. the opportunity to brag about Justin Fields, NFC Offensive Player of the Week. Oh, it, what, what's it, what's it like? What's it like? It feels good. Okay. feels good. <sighs> ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. It's Progressive's <laughs> 10th Keys to Progress giveaway for veterans this year. Their goal is to gift a vehicle to a recipient, small business, or nonprofit in every state. You can check out more about the annual giveaway at keystoprogress.com. Coming up, the latest chapter in the Kyrie Irving saga has him off the court. We will update you on what we could, when we could see him return and more next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Got a crack staff back there tonight because I was whistling a different Lumineers song and they popped up with this. So I appreciate it. They're listening to my whistling, which I'm not even aware I'm doing most of the time, which is annoying. I'm aware. You don't have no, to no, tell no. me they that. No, no, no. They made a whole song in a Disney film about it. <laughs> Whistle while you work. That's right. That's right. It's Spain and Fitz on a Friday. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. I just whistle because I'm having so much fun with you, Fitz. You know? Let's go. Never work when I'm chatting sports with you. It's ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. And listen, we've talked about the Kyrie Irving saga a number of times on this show, but I wanted to bring it back up again tonight, Fitz, because the more I listen to conversations about it, the more I think really important context is being left out. And without it, expectations of believing and accepting apologies, demanding a cutback in the things that Kyrie has been uh, asked to do in order to return to the court, reacting to various statements. I think all of that is really hard to do without the full context. And so I just want to start by saying I am not an expert in these things, but after seeing and hearing some of Kyrie's comments after sharing the Alex Jones tweet, um, and after seeing and hearing his comments, after sharing links to the book and the film that have created so much of a hubbub, I wanted to learn more about what exactly were the views. And if he didn't believe them, why would he share it? If he did believe them, you know, which, which things did he believe in? And here's the problem. What we've heard from Kyrie only has been, uh, uh I'm not going to stand down on anything I believe in, uh, Direct acts, acts, you know, act, uh, questions about whether he's has anti-Semitic views are avoided or not responded to in yes or no ways, and um, a specific response. I cannot be anti-Semitic if I know where I come from. That got me to digging into some of the things behind this film, and I want you guys to listen to in case you don't remember the first press conference about this. He had a very clear and and clearly memorized statement that he disagreed with Alex Jones' claims about Sandy Hook, but he stood by sharing one of Jones' posts, and he said he believed to be true, quote, secret societies in America of occults, 
and said, in terms of the backlash, we're in 2022. History's not supposed to be hidden from anybody. And I'm not a divisive person when it comes to religion. I embrace all walks of life. So the claims of anti-Semitism and who are the original chosen people of God, and we go into these religious conversations and it's a big no, no, I don't live my life that way, was his response to sharing this belief that uh, Jewish people have a secret cobble that runs the world, right? Something that's also expressed in the film. So he clearly has thought about and believes at least some of that. So when he was asked point blank later about the film and the book and why he has not uh, apologized, here's how that went. For the record, do you have any anti-Semitic beliefs? Again, I'm gonna repeat. I don't know how the label becomes justified because you guys ask me the same questions over and over again, but this is not gonna turn into a spin around cycle questions upon questions. I told you guys how I felt. I respect all walks of life and embrace all walks of life. That's where I sit. I think what people want to hear though is just a yes or no on that question. Yes or no. I, I cannot be anti-Semitic if I know where I come from. So that might confuse some people, Fitz, but the film, the book, and what Alex Jones was talking about aligns with this long-standing anti-Semitic trope that claims that white Jews are not the real Jews, that they've stolen the birthright of black people as the true chosen people of God. He's saying, I can't be anti-Semitic against myself if I'm the true Jewish, if I'm the true chosen person of God. Now, most people of every religion believe they're the chosen people, right? I don't believe anybody is the chosen people. I will speak out against criticism and hate for any racial, ethnic group for anyone. And in this case, it happens to be this situation. But I have done this in the past, as you know, with any number of athletes and, and people who have spoken out against any group. So I don't mind if your religion believes that you're the chosen people. But in this case, this fringe group, of this, this dangerous sect of the Black Hebrew Israelites movement, which is what's behind this book and this film and, and the belief that Jewish people have created a lie. It denies the Holocaust and it alleges that this secret society that's in control of everything is dangerous and is stolen from Black Jewish what was rightfully theirs. And it causes violence and hatred. And everything he has said makes it clear that he believes that. That's why he said, I can't be anti-Semitic if I know where I come from. That's why he said, you know, the original chosen people of God and everybody should know history and it shouldn't be hidden. So when he just puts out a statement that says, I don't believe I'm not anti-Semitic and Joe Sy and Adam Silver say they have no doubt that he doesn't hate anyone. That is using semantics to get around the real conversation and to get around the fact that Kyrie Irving is not informed about history and he is perpetuating statements that cause people to deny the Holocaust and the horrific history of what has happened to Jewish people. If we don't have the honest conversation about this belief system and what's in those books and movies, we're never going to get anywhere. We're just going to go in circles and we're going to end up shrugging and saying, well, I guess he said he's sorry. Sometimes a simple answer is a powerful one. So when you're asked the very simple question of do you have anti-Semitic views, it's easy to just say no. And no matter how much you think that you're being, even if you're being interviewed, and you feel like you're being pinned into a corner, you still control your ability to say yes or no to simple yeah. questions. And I think the hardest part about all of this is we can hear a statement from Adam Silver or, or Joe Sy. We can hear those statements or we can read those statements, I should say. But the follow-up question that we're not getting an answer to is based on what? 
I mean, when Adam Silver says that he has no doubt that Kyrie Irving is not anti-Semitic after the two had what the NBA commissioner called a direct and candid conversation, I, I think we just need to know more, and we deserve it in a situation like this when it comes down to hate or hate speech. You deserve to know more. You deserve to be more transparent. What were the questions asked? What were the answers given? How did he come to the conclusion? Don't mm-hmm. just tell me you talked to somebody. Tell me what you talked to him about. Tell me who was in the room that could help make sure that there was a true and comprehensive understanding. Because if you're just saying, trust me, I think most of us in our life, if you've dealt with somebody that has spread hate to you, and then the answer is, well, just trust me, that's not real. That's not a real or genuine answer that anybody will take, and it's not the benefit of the doubt that he's earned because he has none. So at this point, I think we deserve more transparency in how they're coming to their conclusions. Yeah, I completely agree with you. We have not heard from Kyrie Irving anything that was not problematic. What we've seen is a statement on Twitter that looked to be potentially written by someone else based on the fact that it conflicted with every on-air response to the media that we've actually seen. And then we've heard other people vouching for him, from LeBron to Adam Silver to Josiah. And Fitz, it is entirely possible that Kyrie Irving does deep in his heart believe that he is not against any religion or people, but that he has been caught up in a disinformation campaign that has led him to believe things that are not historically accurate and that when spread are terribly dangerous for people of the Jewish faith. We know this based on statistics into anti-Semitic crime and we know that his influence matters. So whether or not you believe his heart is pure, if he is perpetuating disinformation like he did with his anti-vax statements, like he did with his flat earth statements, That it's not, well, he thinks he's a good person, so that should be what matters. No. Get to the bottom and discuss this with the real context that's necessary to understand so that when you say he's not anti-Semitic, you're not hiding behind semantics. You're actually getting to the root of his beliefs and whether or not he needs to have the conversations to change them and be informed. It's super easy for somebody to come in and say, man, I screwed this whole thing up. And that's part of being an adult is admitting when you do that. Until he does that, why would any of us believe that he's just him, him simply saying what he's saying without any real, real detail has no teeth to it? Right. And that's why I feel like, well, he apologized. He shouldn't have to do all those things until we actually believe that he understands the damage here. I, I think there's plenty of work to be done. Speaking of work, World Cup next week. We'll get into it. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz with you on a Friday on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance, insurance for motorcycles, boats, and RVs for protection on the road and on the water. See how much you could save at 1-800-PROGRESSIVE and Progressive.com. Let's welcome in the host of E60 and Outside the Lines, Jeremy Schapp, who did a fantastic job setting up the stage for this World Cup on ESPN Daily with Pablo Torre. And I recommend listening to that whole episode, but we'll try to give you a taste here of some of the most illuminating things that he's learned over the course of many years researching and reporting on this World Cup bid and the ensuing build uh, for this World Cup. I want to start there, Jeremy. When this bid was first won, what did you learn about how Qatar got the bid and about just the size of the country and the absurdity of it hosting? Well, you know, it's interesting. So when we found out that Qatar was going to be the host in 2022, that was in December 2010. And at the time, uh, it was simultaneously announced that Russia would be the host of the 2018 tournament. So they did 
both of them at the same time. That's always a bad idea. That lends itself to corrupt process, vote trading, et cetera. Um, there were all kinds of shenanigans. Uh, you know, a member of the big committee, a woman who worked for the big committee, Fidra Amajid, um, she spoke uh, subsequently about being present in Luanda, in Angola, um, during the process of trying to lobby for Qatar to be the host and saw bribes being offered to important soccer officials who had votes with the FIFA executive committee that would decide who would be the host of the tournament. So we're talking about uh, bribery, uh, allegations. Uh, we're talking about in Qatar, right, uh, a country, a very small country, uh, smaller in area than the state of Connecticut, um, with um, at that time about 300,000 citizens. I think they're now about 380,000 citizens. The vast majority of the population is made up of foreign workers. Uh, and, and this is a country in which there is no great soccer tradition to speak of. Uh, so it was one of those things where immediately uh, when it was announced that Qatar had won the bidding process, there were questions raised, and people thought, you know, how did this possibly happen? So for all the yelling and screaming and conversation that's happened since then, did any of it resonate in a way that made any sort of impact that could have changed this location? Could have. I mean, I guess there's always the possibility that, you know, FIFA could have, uh, once these things came to light, um, and once it became clear that it wouldn't be possible for the tournament to take place in the summertime, uh, you know, all, all of that could have changed. I mean, the leadership of FIFA changed in the summer of 2015 uh, after, you know, this is now four years after Qatar has been awarded the hosting rights and Sepp Blatter was out. And then uh, in early 2016, Johnny Infantino succeeded him as president of FIFA. Uh, you know, I, 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 you know, things could have changed, but the point is that FIFA didn't want them to change. You know, FIFA mm -hmm. had made this commitment. They overlooked uh, the irregularities, if you want to put it that way, in the process. And, and you know, from the beginning, they were committed to uh, seeing this through, uh, even though it, it eventually necessitated, which, you know, anybody, anybody could have foreseen, moving the World Cup to this time of year, uh, you know, which is uh, disruptive, highly disruptive, for you know many of the European uh, leagues, uh, you know it, it you know theoretically diminishes. I think the television value. I'm not an expert on these things. You know, in North America, where it's competing then against you know uh, so many other sports leagues, especially of course the National Football League in the mm -hmm. fall. So uh, you know, but they 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 stuck by the decision, and, and you know uh, from the beginning, Sepp Blatter, who was the president, as I said. I don't know when he officially resigned. Maybe it was 20. Well, he, his presidency basically ended in 2015, and then the next election was 26. I'm getting all mixed up now. It's been so long. But, um, <laughs> you know, he said this wasn't going to change. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is uh, part of it is uh, hoping and wishing that FIFA cared about this or hoping and wishing that you could reverse a system that is so corrupt as to how uh, they ended up in here. And, and Jeremy, I mean, I think. For all the issues that we have with them being unfairly awarded the cup, I think in the years since then, 
the biggest concern has been the deaths and the and the working conditions that in some cases amount to slave labor in Qatar. And Jeremy Schapp, host of V16 Outside the Lines, is with us. Can you talk to us about um, the workers that have perished and, and the, the slavery that has essentially gone on in this country? Well, uh, let me put it this way, Sarah. So the system that they have, and I mentioned uh, the foreign workers, uh, the migrant laborers in Qatar make up the vast majority of the population, 90% of the population, you know, many of them from impoverished places around the world, uh, many of them in construction, especially from South Asia, uh, from Pakistan and India and Sri Lanka, um, from Bangladesh and Nepal, uh, you know, they uh, form the backbone of um, the crews that that build uh, everything that makes it possible to have a World Cup in Qatar. Uh, we're talking about not just the stadiums, but you know we say the infrastructure, the hotels, uh, the roads, the fan uh, gathering places, the um, uh, transportation system, everything that goes into bringing you know 1.5 to 2 million people into the country as guests during the tournament, um, and in Qatar, as in some other countries in the region, there has been a system called the kafala system, the sponsorship system, which ties workers to their employers. And the system, uh, a highly abusive uh, system, you know, which results in, you know, terrible abuse of workers, uh, denies them certain fundamental rights. Uh, you know, their, their passports are taken. They can't switch jobs. They can't leave the country without their employer's permission. Um, and we went to Qatar in 2014 to, you know, see what it was like, what life was like for many of these workers, and the, the conditions that we we found were appalling, uh, unhygienic, um, uh, overcrowded, um, you know, just 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 terrible stuff. And and then in the years following, um, um, you know, not just our report, but reports that other people did, uh, and especially the work of human rights organizations and uh, uh, organizations that work to assure the rights of laborers, like the International Trade Union Confederation, um, you know, things started to change. And um, Qatar went uh, to the negotiating table with the International Labor Organization, the arm of the United Nations that works to assure worker rights. And, you know, they, they felt a lot of international pressure to change the system in Qatar, to give workers more rights, to reform this system. And starting in 2017, that's what took place. The issue now, uh, here we are five years later after those reforms became the law, the question is always what actually happens on the ground, the extent to which uh, um, they are being enforced, they are being respected, Things have changed. Now, when I went to Qatar six months ago, um, you know, I saw different conditions. Now, you know, I saw I saw um, different conditions that when I saw in 2014, I saw some conditions in which, you know, foreign workers are still uh, living that, you know, are, you know, it's a tough life. It's a tough life. And, um, you know, there are still workers being denied wages by their employers. There are still labor protests there. Um, you know, there's still, uh, you know, people dying at work, uh, you know, and, and struggling to have um, uh, their rights recognized, their families struggling to have their rights recognized and to find out the precise cause of death when someone does die in Qatar. 
who, who's from overseas. So there are all kinds of issues that that still exist. So, Jeremy, we could talk to you about this for hours and never get as much information as we need. But I got to change the subject real quick before we get you out of here. Uh, you've got an sure. E60 feature coming out this weekend, the 40-year anniversary of the play between Cal and Stanford. Everybody knows this. If you watch college football, every musician wants to be an athlete. Maybe that was all of our chances. What are you the most excited <laughs> for for people to see about a play that they know so much about? Look, I, I, I don't, you know, I don't like to exaggerate these things, uh, but I think it's the greatest play in the history of sports. <laughs> not just college football, not just football, which goes back to, you know, 1869. I think what happened in the final seconds of this game on November 20th, 1982, is the most exciting, the most unlikely the most uh, thrilling, now I'm taking words from the famous call of Joe Starkey, the Cal radio <laughs> announcer, as he was describing in the moment. But what, what, I mean, how many football games have the three of us watched together in our lives? I don't know, thousands, right? right. Have you ever seen a game end on a five lateral touchdown? Uh, I don't know how many I've seen like that. I, I don't think any other than this. Maybe, maybe yeah. one or two. I, I mean, don't know. It's, I don't know. It's... High school? Yeah, no, I don't think like, anyone would argue it's like one of the greatest plays ever. And I think what's so fascinating is to actually see the things we don't know for all the times we've heard about it and seen it. And that's why I think this is going to be uh, just a killer, killer E60. I can't wait. I can't yeah, wait. I know. It's it's, a lot we're we're but, pumped. Uh, and I got to give credit to the, the director, Simon Baumgart and Mike Shallow. I mean, they went after this. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's going to be awesome. I mean, you're not going to believe it. Yeah. Going to be just, like third third chair flautist chimes in with something we've never heard before. <laughs> we, be, we go very, very deep. But here's the thing, too, right? Like, this is about, there are people, this is still inspirational, right? This is of not course. just a yeah. sports moment. This is about never giving up. And those are, you know, cliches, right? But this is a moment that embodies that. They didn't well, give we're up. we're pumped. We're they pumped to watch fighting. it. I'm going to keep going until you guys... Hang up on me. I'm going to keep talking about it. All right, well, in that case, you're going to be just like the players on the field who didn't give up. We're the band. We're trying to play you off. And here you come. Uh, Jeremy, incredible stuff. No, no, no. Incredible stuff on the World Cup, and we're looking forward to the E60. Uh, Thanks, as always, for giving us your time. Appreciate it. Thank you, my friend. Thanks, guys. For real, listen to the ESPN Daily with Pablo. They have more time to get into it. It is so, so worth understanding before the World Cup gets underway and you choose to or to not watch it. Coming up, it's Friday. We got to make our picks for the weekend in the NFL Pick'em Challenge. It's coming up next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80, and your smart speaker, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. Oh, you know, they have done a really nice job because Sarah was whistling this earlier. Now, bang, we get it in the the the, the, the guys are like Nick and Chris are killing it tonight. Yeah. Uh, it is it is wildly spectacular work. We're having a good time. Uh, we're having a good time, even though we now need to do the picks for anyone that hasn't been paying attention. There's a pick uh, cha- challenge before we play all the fancy production. There's a pick challenge going on. And Sarah and I decided that we would alternate weeks. So I just want to remind everybody that I picked last week and it was hot garbage. So with that mm. being said, mm. Sarah is back to save us. It is time for the ESPN Radio Pick'em Challenge. It's a team, man. It's a team. One guy can't do it. It takes all of us. ESPN Radio's Pick'em Challenge. 
All right, we are That's one game back of second place right now. Greeny's at 14-11-2. We're at 13-12-2. Freddie and Fitzsimmons are back to cheating. They're obviously buying people off 15-10-2. Uh, so we'll get you the three games that ESPN Radio has to pick against each other. And we start with one in Germany. Fun fact for you here, Sarah, over 3 million people tried to get a ticket. That's not an exaggeration to this game. It was the hot ticket. Hot ticket brought to you by Vivid Seats to celebrate 11-11. They're giving away $5,000 today on Twitter. Visit twitter.com slash Vivid Seats for your chance to win. You got the Bucks minus three against the Seahawks in Germany. What do you think, Sarah? As Mina Kime said, it was very nice of us to ship over the league's best quarterback and also Tom Brady to Germany. Um, I got the Seahawks. Thank you very much. I got the Seahawks. Uh, I think it's not even going to be all that close. I think the Seahawks are a better team, and I don't think I was that impressed by that late comeback against the Rams from the Bucks. So I got the Seahawks. I really regret early in the year not putting money on Kenneth Walker III for Rookie of the Year. Mm. The way he's running the ball just gets better and better, and he is doing exactly for Tampa Bay what he did for Michigan State. He saves them every single week. He's just dynamic electric. I love that pick. I I think you're spot on. Uh, Let's go to the next game on the list. Cowboys a five point uh, five point favorite going on the road to Green Bay. Ooh, Lambo. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, there's a temptation to think the the old Aaron Rodgers versus his old coach in McCarthy, and they're going to figure it out, but they couldn't do Jack, you know what, against the Lions defense. So what do you think they're going to do, uh, you know, against a Cowboys team that's going to absolutely attack them? Uh, seven interceptions from Rodgers already this season, most since 2016. Uh, he's he's uh, set up to be sacked by a Cowboys team that continues to get after the quarterback. I've got the Cowboys, and I'm taking the points. Yeah, I think you're right on. We're, we're two for two on this. We agree. And I, the Cowboys are going to feast. This, this game is going to be about the fact that I think the Packers can't score. So let's go to the third game on the list. Look, this one gets tough because it's in Mm. San Francisco, but San Francisco's a seven-point favorite against the Chargers team that's supposed to be good and have a superstar quarterback. Yeah, this is frustrating, as the Chargers have been all season long. They're giving up a league-worst yards per rush. Uh, They lost their best run-stopping defensive lineman to a season-ending injury. And with Christian McCaffrey on the opposite side, looking like he can be a season-changer for the Niners, it feels like this could be a game that gets just absolutely decided on the ground. Um, I, I haven't been impressed by the Chargers like I expected. I thought they would take that big leap this year, and they haven't. I've got I've got the Niners, and I'm taking the points. I got the Niners. Ooh. This is the first one we actually disagree with you on. Okay. I, I, but I do agree with you. I think the 49ers win this football game. Seven just feels like such a huge number. But I'm also willing to admit that the Chargers at this point, uh, they're the football and I'm Charlie Brown. Every time, every week. <laughs> I know. I'm still, I'm That's running why I'm up not and I'm doing like, it. I refuse to, to do it again. It's and, like the Clippers. Every time I talk about the Clippers and believe in them, I'm like, I won't get fooled again. Mm-hmm. And now I think the same thing about the Chargers. And look, it's only going to get better and more dynamic as Christian McCaffrey gets more comfortable. Mm-hmm. This 49ers team is racked and sacked. All right. We always give you the bonus games. Racked our own and sacked? Racked huh? and stacked. Racked, racked and, and stacked. stacked. Okay. Yeah. 
Okay. Good old, good old Southern colloquialism. I feel like those were my nicknames in. in high school. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the jokes don't it's stop a on a Friday. Friday. That's uh, right. <laughs> all right, let's get one of our favorite teams in here. The Bears are two-and-a-half-point favorite at home against the Lions team everybody was willing to ride off last week, but then they beat the Packers. Now mm. we got a Lions team that's hot, 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 hot because they won one game against yeah. Justin Fields, who ran all over the place last week. What do you think? Yeah, Justin Fields is starting to figure it out. The team is starting to game plan for him. He is the NFC Offensive Player of the Week. Uh, you do have a brotherly matchup here in Amon Ron, Equinemia, St. Brown facing off against each other. I do not like this Lions defense. I feel that the Bears continue to get their you-know-what together and improve every week. I'm taking the Bears and the points. We agree again. Ooh. I think you're spot on. And by the way, this is we came into the season saying I didn't care about wins or losses personally for the Bears. I cared about yep. could they identify if they got their coach and their quarterback. Every single week that those two play yep. well together, it feels like you take a huge step forward there. Let's get one more in. We know what's coming. Losers, in other we words. Get the, uh, oh, we get the tank <laughs> game here of all tank games. And, look, I, I don't have a lot of faith left in the Raiders. But I said earlier when we were talking about revenge angles, Gus Bradley was the defensive coordinator last year of the Raiders. Part of the reason that the Raiders – didn't love their defense last year was it was air quotes too simple. Now it's air quotes too complicated. But I have seen Derek Carr look wildly confused the last two weeks. I've never seen anything like it. I think Derek Carr can get really comfortable when he's taking on a coordinator that has a defense he saw in practice for quite a long time. Like, I think Derek Carr is comfortable. I think the Raiders win this game. Four and a half is a lot of points, but I think the Raiders can win this. Yeah, I can't believe uh, I'm tempted to take the Raiders literally against anyone. Um, and I know that sometimes when a new coach comes into a dire situation, the guys get all fired up and they play extra hard for him. And I guess that could happen with Jeff Saturday, which makes me... I think I'm going to mm. take the Colts. I think I'm going to take the Colts. I don't blame you. I don't yeah. blame you. I, Not necessarily to win, but just any points. I don't know. I think it's going to be awful and terrible and close. Well, the Colts, have ne their play callers never call plays before, so you have no yeah. film you can study. What I do terrible. know is Josh McDaniels and Jeff Saturday are playing Scrabble on Freddie and Fitzsimmons wow. tonight. You do not want to miss it. This has Check been Spain out. and Fitz, Friday edition. Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can listen to the show weeknights at 7 Eastern on ESPN Radio and on the ESPN app.